0: Isaiah 49, I'm gonna read verses 1, just through verse 7, not through verse 13, as it says in the bulletin. Page 609 in the Church Bible. Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 7. Hear God's word to his people. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword, in the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me a polished arrow, in his quiver he hid me away. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, that and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says, Is it too light a thing that you should be my servant? to raise up the tribes of Jacob, and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations, that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Kings shall arise, kings shall see and arise, princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. This is God's word.
1: i do keep your Bibles open in Isaiah 49. It's often true, isn't it, in life that the presenting problem is not the real problem. A person may come for counseling, they may come about one issue, And in the course of the counseling, it's exposed that there is something deeper, further down, further in, going further back in their experience that is the real issue at stake. And in many ways, that's what we find in the book of Isaiah as the prophet has been uh, conducting an exercise in exposing before our eyes as we read his book, the real issues at stake in the life of Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, He has made his reputation early on in his career by 100% rightly describing the outcome of the Syrian-Israel conflict, which occupies the first few chapters of the book, of the uh, fall of Assyria and uh, that conflict, that crisis. He He will make his reputation in future generations by his prediction that that the Babylonians will rise to power and will take away the population of Israel or of Judah and Jerusalem into exile and he will further make his reputation even further into the future as he predicts the rise of uh, Cyrus the Persian and his being used by God to bring Israel back to the promised land. Now, that prediction in particular has taken up the last few chapters of Isaiah because it is a very vital prediction. Because early on in the book, Isaiah has made it very clear that God's long-term program for the world is connected to Jerusalem, that from Jerusalem will go out to the whole world the message, the good news of God's salvation. Well, how can that happen if God is going to judge his people and send them into exile? They have to somehow or other get back there. And it's the getting back there that God uses Cyrus to bring about in history. But even that problem is nothing to the more fundamental issue that Isaiah is addressing in this book. And that issue can be broken down into three parts. First of all, there is the issue of sin. It is pervasive everywhere in this book. Whether Isaiah is talking about the nations round about Palestine or whether he's talking about Judah and Jerusalem and Israel in general. He is talking about sin. It's ingrained. It's in their bones. It is part of their identity. It has been from the beginning. They have been Obstinate in their rebellion against God, rejecting prophet after prophet who has come as a covenant attorney to prosecute the case of Yahweh versus Israel. After time after time after time, those people rejected God. In fact, early on in the book, Isaiah uses the image of a vineyard and says that God, as a gardener, planted a vineyard. He planted vines in the vineyard, he looked for fruit, he found wild grapes. He looked for righteousness, he found unrighteousness. He looked for justice, he found injustice. Whatever God looked for a result in Israel, Israel failed him. Sin is pervasive. That's the first issue. The second issue is that Israel has not lived up to her name. Back in chapter 48, uh, God speaks to the house of Jacob, to the house of Israel. He says, "This, hear all this, hear this, O house of Jacob. This is verse one of forty-eight. Who are called by the name of Israel? Now, that, 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 there's irony there. There's a bit of sarcasm there. You have the name of Israel. Israel is the name of the people of God. You have the name of the people of God, but you don't have the nature of the people of God." You have the name, but in fact, in fact, though you confess by the name of the Lord and confess by the God of Israel, this is 48 verse 1, you do not do that in truth or right. Something fundamental is wrong with Israel. Israel is not living up to its name, it is not living up to its calling. And when Israel, represented by Judah and Jerusalem in exile, come back from exile to the promised land, things are not going to be any better. The sin problem will still be there. The Israel problem will still be there. They will still fail to be a light to the Gentiles. They will still fail to bring forth the righteousness that God wants to see. In fact, when God sends the Messiah, we will find out later in Isaiah, Israel itself will reject its own Messiah. So the sin problem still remains, and the Israel problem still remains. And here's where chapter 48 now kicks in. Because it introduces us to God's solution and God's resolution to the problem, first of Israel, and then secondly of sin. That is really what's happening here in chapter 49. And as you read the chapter, I hope you notice that what Isaiah is doing in the Spirit, you remember he's a prophet, he is in the Spirit, he is being lifted out of his, uh, his current surroundings, and environment. He is being inspired with the breathed out words of God by the Holy Spirit. And he is hearing from the Spirit, and we are hearing from the Spirit through him, words from the eternal realm in which the Spirit is operating, in which past, present, and future are, as it were, all one. And in the words that he reports to us, In the conversation that now begins to follow here in chapter 49, the conversation ranges over what we call time, our experience of time. Ranges over this, as in this revelation, God, by the Holy Spirit, introduces us through Isaiah to a conversation which, from the earliest days of the church, has been understood to be a conversation between the Father and the Son by the Holy Spirit. In other words, the earliest church recognized in listening to this chapter, in fact, people like Irenaeus and Barnabas and others said this is one of the most crucial chapters in the whole of Isaiah and indeed in the whole of the Old Testament. And so, as we listen into this conversation, I want to identify the speakers, number one, as we go along, and I want to take out from the speeches those other speeches that are reported within them. For example, in verse 3, you can see one clearly. This is another speech being reported by one of the speakers, and he said to me, you are. Then, verse 4, but I said... And then verse 5, but now the Lord says, and again in verse 6, He says, we're going to identify who the speakers are, and we're going to rearrange them in the order of time in which the speeches were made. So let's begin then with the first speech recorded in verse 3, God speaking to the servant, that is the servant's son, who has been introduced in chapter 42 This servant that has been introduced as the ideal, the perfect servant of the Lord who is characterized by righteousness. Remember, Israel was characterized by unrighteousness. But in chapter 42, this servant, this servant, is characterized through and through by righteousness. He carries the Spirit of God in his fullness. This individual is the very individual to whom the Lord God will point on the day Jesus is baptized by quoting from Isaiah 42 and saying about an individual servant, You are my son, Sam 2. With you I am well pleased, Isaiah 42. The baptism of Jesus, God identifies who this figure is. It is his servant, son, Jesus. And look at verse 3. Here is what God says to his servant son, Jesus. He said to me, this is the son speaking, you, God is speaking to the servant, you, singular, are my servant, Israel, in whom, in you, singular, I will be glorified. So already in this text, we have something quite revolutionary happening. Whereas before up to this point, we've been thinking of Israel as the corporate people of God. The nation of Israel, now represented only, sadly, by this stage in the book as Isaiah looks into the future, only represented now by Judah and Jerusalem. The Jews are all that's left of the Israel that we find identified at the beginning. By the time people are reading this and begin to hear it in in their day, long after Isaiah has gone and written this, long before, uh, the reality will be that the ten tribes to the north have vanished as a corporate identity, completely enmeshed into the nations of the world. Many of you who don't know it might even be descended from those ten northern tribes of Israel. Lost To the world, but not lost to God. And uh, that Israel is now being represented in this passage. Do you notice this name Israel is now being given to this individual who's been identified as the perfect servant, the righteous servant. And the Lord God is saying to this individual, you, singular, are my servant Israel. In whom, singular, I will be glorified. And the giving of the title is the calling to a task. This individual is to represent Israel. He is the representative, the substitute. He is acting as Israel should have acted. He is going to be all that Israel never measured up being. Who is he? You go to Matthew's gospel, and you read the story right at the beginning of the gospel of the genealogy that is of all of Israel, from Abraham right down, and it it finds its focus in the Messiah. You go to chapter 2. You find the Messiah Retracing the footsteps of Israel, going down to Egypt for safety, and then coming back from Egypt. No sooner does he begin his public ministry than he goes out across the Jordan into the desert to be tested by the devil the way Israel was tested in the desert. During its 40 years of wandering in the desert, and time after time failed to obey God. And was left to wander because of its failure. Was left to wander in the desert because of its disobedience. And there Jesus, quoting from Deuteronomy again and again and again. Deuteronomy, the very book that tells the story of Israel's wandering and Israel's disobedience. Jesus, quoting from that very book again and again and again, obeys as he resists the devil. Obeys as he wards off Satan. Obeys as he... Worships God and obeys his Father and does the will of the one who sent him. Jesus comes into the world as an individual representative of the Israel of God. All of God's dealings with humanity find their focal point in this one person. And this one person will obey where they disobeyed. So right at the very beginning, the Israel problem is going to be solved by an individual. One man is going to solve the Israel problem. He is named the Israel of God. Then the second speech. This time it's servant of the servant of, of God, and uh, this time the setting in time is later. It's much later later. It's during the period of the earthly life of our Lord, and uh, we find here in this verse, uh, we find something that's not reported actually in the Gospels, but we find an insight into the psychology of the servant while he's about his business. But I said, I have labored in vain, I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity Yet surely my right is with the Lord, and my recompense is with my God. In the uh, subjugant, it says, for emptiness I have toiled. Here is the servant, the servant's son Jesus. In the days of his flesh, at a point in his ministry where he is despondent, Where he is feeling the frustration of working and laboring and doing the will of his Father, but is seeing no fruit. The crowds have come and perhaps they have gone. It's one of those periods where people are coming only for the miracles he performs and the healings that he does. And they're not listening to his word. They're not responding to his word. It's that point at which the son realizes that he has come to his own place, but his own people will not receive him. In the midst of his despondency, what does our Lord do? Well, it tells you what he does. He resigns the rights to God. He says, this is how I feel. I feel it's hard work. I feel I'm gaining nothing. I feel as if we're getting nowhere, but... I, re- I resolve all of that by casting it on my Father, by giving it over to God, by trusting that God knows God's plans will be fulfilled. God will work this out in His own time and in His own way. And wherever Jesus' people feel this kind of dismay, wherever Jesus' people find despondent, wherever you find yourself as if life is, is, you're not making any progress in life, Perhaps you're even taking some steps back from progress. I want you to remember that your Lord Jesus, your lovely Lord Jesus, was tempted in all points just like you are, yet without sin. He knew this dismay. Isaiah reports it. The Spirit reports it and tells us how Jesus reacted to it. The third speech. Here's God comforting the servant, comforting the servant in light of his sense of emptiness and toil and vanity. What does the Lord encourage him by saying, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel? I will make you as a light for the nations and that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Here's a father comforting his son by reminding his son of the long-term goal of his work. Here is the servant's son, Jesus, the new and true Israel. Israel's representative par excellence. To whom has been given the ultimate mission that God gave to Israel. What was the mission that God gave to Israel? It was that Israel should be a light to the nations. But instead of being a light to the nations, they'd, become, they'd alienated the nations on the one hand, and they had imitated the nations on the other. And here's God coming to comfort His Son, and to remind Him that this is the great mission that God has given, that He will make Him as a light to the nations. Jesus accepted this as the Word of God to Him, and He tells His disciples what? He says in John's Gospel, John 8, I am... The light of the world. And because of your connection to me. He tells his disciples there on the mountain. When he's teaching them in Matthew. He says you are the light of the world. God is going to fulfill this mission. He's going to do it through Jesus and Jesus people in the world. And here the son finds a reminder from the father to raise his spirits. And we know that his spirits were raised by the word of God. His spirits were raised because the book of Hebrews tells us that he, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. In other words... Jesus comforted himself in God and in the Word of God. Perhaps this very Word of God came to his mind and heart as comfort in one of those lonely days, and those days of dismay and discouragement and despondency. The Word of God will have lifted his spirit. No, this is what I'm here for. This is the end of my great mission, that there should be a company, a number that no man can number from all the nations and tongues and languages of the world in the kingdom of God. And he was encouraged to go further. The fourth speech is in verse 1 where God addresses remote people in the distant future and tells them that they must listen to the servant and that they must heed the servant and follow the servant. And so the fifth speech is verses 1 to the end of verse 1 through to 4 where the servant addresses these remote people. He talks to them. The Lord says, listen to him. The Lord, and then the servant says this, The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand. He hid me. He made me like a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. And he said to me, but I said. Those, those, those reported speeches that we've already looked at. So by the time we get to this speech, God and the servant have had this lively exchange that we've looked at. And here we find new information. God and the servant have known each other long before he was designated Israel for the purposes of salvation, long before he comes from the womb of a woman, long before that, and God has kept his identity largely hidden until he is brought forth from the womb. So there's an insight into the long-term story of the second person of the Trinity, who in the Old Testament is largely unseen, largely hidden, although if you look for Him, He is all over the place. But He is largely hidden from their view until that moment when He comes into the world and puts skin on, born of a woman, made under the law, that He might redeem those under the law. And again, you notice the emphasis as He speaks to the nations. He speaks to the people in the remote And far off places. In other words, he's speaking to the whole world. There's nowhere left out here. He's talking to the whole world in this speech. And the sixth speech, verse 5, follows this as he has now finished his work. He's finished what he came into the world to do. And here we read this. And the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant... To bring back Jacob to him, then that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored or glorified in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. The Greek translation, the Septuagint, puts it like this. Indeed, I will be gathered to him, and I will be glorified in the presence of the Lord God, and my God will be my strength. And what is the servant saying to the nations, to the people, Remotes, remote peoples like us? Most of us. Most of us, our descendants aren't in the Middle East basin there. They come from all over the world. So our, our, we're, being, we're the objects of this particular speech. And you notice, will you, again the emphasis. Here he is. He is an individual whom God has assigned the name Israel. And what's his job? It is to bring Jacob back to him. That the dispersed people of northern israel including the jews who would return to palestine and who are now all over the world that 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 people might be gathered to him that they might be called back to him this is part of the big picture that is going on here he will save the remnant of corporate israel as well as bringing salvation to the ends of the earth to the gentiles he will he will work salvation for his people wherever they are to be found, within Israel and outside of Israel. This is a great picture, an amazing insight into the nature of God. Very early on in the church, a man called Irenaeus, one of the great fathers of the church, said, do you notice from this passage he says, the son preexisted, that the father spoke to him in the remotest points of time caused him to be revealed to Isaiah before his birth, telling him it was necessary that he should be begotten, that he should be born of a woman. He fashions him from the womb, and the son calls himself the servant of the father. We are listening to this divine conversation. Being transmitted by the Spirit of God to the prophet Isaiah for our upbuilding. We are meant to see, you see, that our understanding of the Trinity does not come from a few New Testament verses, but for the earliest church, it came from their grappling with the Old Testament, with the identity of the God of Israel, and a recognition that in that identity of the God of Israel, There was diversity as well as singularity. There was unity and diversity. There was this figure, the Spirit of the Lord. And there was this figure, the servant of the Lord, who shares in the same identity as the God of Israel. Well, there's a further speech, verse 7. The seventh speech, in fact, where God is speaking now to the abhorred servant. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One. The Septuagint, the Greek version, says at this point, the God of Israel who rescued you, singular, to the one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. Do you see? God is speaking to the servant, and He's describing the experience that led to the servant being downcast and dismayed earlier on. Why is he downcast and dismayed? Here's the reason. He's despised, deeply despised. He's abhorred by the nation. He comes to his own people, his own place and his own people. Don't receive him. He who built the starry skies is the servant of rulers. He stands in chains before Herod and before Pontius Pilate. This is a massive come down. This is, a, this is an amazing humiliation for the one who stands in righteousness in God's eyes, for the one who has the strength of God behind him to come into this poor world, having left that place of bliss that was his, and to find himself in such a position of adhor- abhorrence and despite. But you see the Lord's encouragement, the Father's encouragement. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, who rescued you, says the Septuagint. He is rescued by the Lord. Here's what he says to him. Kings shall see and arise. Princes, and they shall prostrate themselves. That is before you. Because the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, has Chosen you. He will be despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Many were astonished at him. His appearance so marred beyond human semblance. And yet, despite everything, Jesus has nothing going for him in the eyes of the world. To Islam, he isn't the strong fighting prophet. That Muhammad was. To the secularist, he is not your strong natural leader, your SNL, who walks all over everybody to get his own way in the world. A crucified Jesus was to the Gentile world of his day the most shocking and appalling foolishness. And to his own people, the notion of a crucified God was a stumbling block. Yeah. But God says to this very one, in spite of how they see you now, kings shall see in and eyes, princes and, and others will come, and they will prostrate themselves before you and recognize who you are. This servant will pursue his God-given path. In accordance with his father's plan to its utter and ultimate self negating end. Such is the servant of the Lord. Such is your lovely Lord Jesus. Well, the eighth speech really begins in verse 8. We didn't read it, uh, but I'll summarize it for you in the time we have. In this eighth spe- speech, God again is speaking to the servant. Thus says the Lord, speaking to him, In a time of favor, I've answered you. In a day of salvation, I've helped you. I will keep you. I will give you as a covenant to the people. Let's pause there. Here is a promise that God will hear his cry. That God will act for him. That God will rescue him from all the terrors of death. That is the promise that's being fulfilled on resurrection morning. That's the promise that we have as the children of God. The Apostle Paul picks it up in Corinthians, and he says, uh, using these very words, he says, you remember what God did for Jesus? You remember that God raised him from the dead and gave him glory? You remember that he gave him this resurrection from the death? That's what you need That's what you need. That's what the world needs. This is the day of salvation. If you want that resurrection from the dead, if you want to share in the resurrection of Jesus, then on this day, this day of salvation, you must believe in Jesus if you would share His resurrection too. In a day of favor I have answered you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. And there's a sense in which the Apostle Paul is saying to the church at Corinth and saying to us, God will do this for you. He will do this for all you who are connected to Jesus, who are tied to Jesus, bound to Jesus, believing into Jesus. He will do this for you. In the final day of salvation, he will be there to help you, to rescue you, to deliver you from all your fears. Indeed, To deliver you from death and hell itself. That's what he will do for you. Because he did it for the servant. He heard. He rescued. And not only did he do that. But you notice he makes the servant son, Jesus, to be a covenant to the people. How do you make someone a covenant to the people? Usually you take an animal and you kill the animal in one of these kind of business deals, a covenant arrangement. You take the animal, you kill the animal, and the animal's blood is a sign and symbol that you have cut the covenant, that you have established this fundamental relationship. What he's saying is this. Jesus will be a covenant for the nation in his own blood. That's what, that's what Isaiah is saying. Jesus is picking up this language when he says at the Lord's table, In reference to his own body being torn. And his own blood being shed. This is the blood of the new covenant. The new covenant in my blood. Shed for many. For the forgiveness of sins. Here is the first sign. That not only will this covenant servant. This servant son Jesus. Deal with the Israel problem. By being the Israel God always wanted. Doing what Israel should have done. Obeying where Israel disobeyed. On behalf of his people. But this Israel will deal with a sin problem. He will deal with a thing that bars us from a relationship with God. He will not only bring them back. Cyrus will bring them back to the promised land. But Jesus will bring them back to God. Jesus brings them back to God. That's... That's really what's being said in the rest of this passage. We don't have time to, to unpack it this morning because uh, my time is virtually gone. And you know how much I hate that. Uh, so, uh, and, and I'm showing you great mercy in not proceeding because, we, because we're going to come back to this again. I think I, I've just decided we're coming back to this next week. This is, this is too much here. And it will be better than this because this is the kind of introduction. But in this section, this last section, that's precisely what is being said here. Let me, let me summarize. In these speeches, in Isaiah 49, the Father shows His love for the Son and unveil, unveils to the Son and to us what the Son's mission is in the world. He is to be the true and faithful Israel who will gather the people of God to Himself. Secondly, God the Father will be glorified through the self-abasing humiliation of the servant son. You remember, as Jesus anticipates going to the cross in John 17, he prays to the Father, Father, glorify your son that your son may glorify you. In what what way? By, By me taking the path that I've taken to the cross. Thirdly, the son... The servant's son takes up this calling willingly as an obedient son. Yes, he nearly despairs because the mission and the method seem so futile. Yet, he continues to trust the father, knowing the father alone can judge the, the, can judge the matter and the fruit. And trusting the father, he goes on to finish the task given to him. And at that low point for the son... The Father shows His special, personal concern for the Son. In other words, through these conversations, we get an insight into the loving bond within the Trinity. We have a glimpse into the heart of the Father for the Son. The eagerness for the Father to explain to the Son, Son especially in His humanity. As His knowledge grows, as He grasps His mission In his humanity, by reading the Bible itself, as he reads this, he hears the voice of his father, reassuring him, encouraging him, strengthening him in his humanity, in his human nature. The son finds strength in the word of his father. And the Spirit reports that 800 years beforehand to Isaiah. And Isaiah records it for our benefit. So Christ's obedience glorifies the Father. And faithful Christian service, by extension, glorifies the Father too. Do you know that? Here you are, a child of God. What is this to do with you? This is what it has to do with you. Where does the Bible say you are located? Read the Apostle Paul's let us over and over and over again. Where are you located? You are in Christ. You, by your connection to Him, are the Israel of God. You, by your connection to Him, are living stones in the temple. You, by your connection to Him, are the light of the world just as He was you by your connection to him glorify God because the Bible says, let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And as we leave here today to go out into the world for the rest of this week, as we go to love our neighbor in our daily work, as we go to serve them, serve the world in the various ways in which God has placed us, as we do that to the best of our ability with the help of the Spirit, in dependence on God's grace, so in our daily lives we bring glory to God. And on the day that Jesus visits us, that is on the day of His return, when everything is exposed, it will blow your mind to see the ways in which God has used your ordinariness and your ordinary good works to glorify your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would please take this word this morning. Hard for some of us perhaps to get our heads around the movements in this passage, but nonetheless, that big picture of our Lord Jesus in his humanity, reflected in the language of the Holy Spirit given to Isaiah the prophet, coming into the world to be and to do all that Israel failed to be and to do. And now gathering to himself as he does in Matthew's gospel, a people gathered around him, the center. We pray, Lord, that this morning as we live for him in the world, that you would bless our good works, that they might bring you glory. We pray in Jesus' strong name. Amen.